Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, in my home is somebody I've admired for a long time that now I'm so honored to have her on the podcast. And that's my friend, Melissa Dalton Bradford. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me come. I have a spreadsheet, listeners, of all the podcasts we're doing and all the podcasts we've planned. And most of the guests are people that reach out and there's probably more that reach out that can possibly put on the podcast. But sometimes I get impressions that I really need to have somebody on the podcast. And I've had that impression with Melissa for a couple of years and it's just sitting there at the bottom of my podcast spreadsheet. And I thought, well, why is it just sitting there? And so finally I messaged her on Instagram and it turns out she was just leaving Germany for a trip to Utah. She recorded something at BYU she made mention. And so um, it just worked out that in this beautiful June day, uh, Melissa Dalton Bradford's here in her home. She brought her mother, Donna, um, with her, a wonderful woman who um, Melissa's father and Donna's husband um, recently passed away. His name is David. So the family is mourning this wonderful man, David Dalton, who is gone. Um, but um, Melissa, just somebody as I've admired for a long time, and our family's gotten to know your son, Dalton, our daughter, Emily and Dalton, got to That's know right. um, each mm-hmm. other at BYU. He's a terrific young man doing wonderful things in the world. Um, I became aware of part of your family story with your son, Parker, your oldest son, Parker, that died in a drowning accident in 2007. And um, that's sort of a parent's worst nightmare. I think you're living in Europe at the time. And so Melissa's actually written three books. Um, one, at least one talks about this. If you're dealing with death, um, just sort of unimaginable death, um, Melissa's words on the podcast as well as her book will help you. Um, she's going to talk about these books as kind of a golden triangle. So this podcast is broader than just if you're dealing with death. It's really if you're dealing with the complexities of life and you're looking for principles to bring hope and healing and better understanding and more unity and really own the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring peace in your life and help others find peace. Melissa's broad, expansive perspective, I think, will help you. Is that okay for an introduction? Those are such kind words. Thank you so much. I'll try and live up to them. <laughs> tell us a little bit, of, just tell us a little bit about your growing up. And I know you've got a master's degree and you're also a soloist. Tell us a little bit about, I know you may not like to talk about yourself, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to before <laughs> okay. you get into some of these books. Sure. Well, I have my mom here. So it began with my mom, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> my mom and my dad were studying music in Munich. When I was conceived, can I go any more? Can I go more personal than that? Donna's laughing. I think she knows that's true. And I think that that in and of itself tells a lot about where I come from. My parents raised us as global citizens, even though my mother came from the, der- the deserts of Arizona. My dad came from a little cow town called Springville, Utah. They're both musicians. They both speak foreign languages and they've spent a lot of their lives living or traveling and studying and teaching outside of the U.S. And they raised us in our home in Provo with an appreciation for different cultures, just different ways of of being. My mother's an opera singer. My dad's a a violist and a conductor, a music professor. And so arts were always, always sort of the water that we were swimming in. So I was raised to think outside of Utah Valley and to think in musical and artistic terms. And I was raised with language. I often say that my dad, who served a German-speaking mission, and my mom also learned, learned German, 
they always prayed in German when I was growing up so that I was convinced that God was German. <laughs> it was a surprise to me that God is actually a polyglot and is <laughs> multicultural. So, so we grew up hearing German in our home, and then we, we went with my parents when they were faculty leaders of, of a few BYU semesters abroad. And then I studied German, and I served a German mission, and then I married a wonderful person who had a similar kind of background, whose parents appreciated different cultures, had lived in different cultures. And so my husband, Randall, served a German-speaking mission, and he and I taught at the MTC together. Wow. So that was a really beautiful beginning of our relationship, too, is that we, we sort of had this hybrid of gospel fidelity with a global worldview, like like everywhere out there is Zion. It isn't just here. It's, it's, we take Zion out wherever we are. So um, when my husband and I finished our graduate degrees, I did a master's in comparative literature, taught German at BYU, humanities. Uh, my husband taught in the business school and he taught English and he taught German as well. When we finished that, um, we moved to Vienna together and then we moved to Hong Kong together. And then from the greater New York City area, we moved on an assignment um, with his first employer, to an island in Norway. And we've been outside of the U.S. for 30 years since. That's where we've raised our children. We raised and had brought to this earth um, our children. We have four children, and all of them grew up with multiple languages in little teeny struggling branches, you know, where they were the one, one person in the young man program or the young woman program. And, and, and that seems to be what suits us well, or at least we felt that's how Heavenly Father um, can use us. And it's not for everyone, and I'm not pretending that it's better than anyone else's. It just really suits us well. Well, to get to the story that I think we're going to focus on the most today, it was in one of those many international moves that we've made. We've made 21 We've lived across nine countries. Um, it was in the middle of one of those moves as we were just getting ready to launch our eldest, Parker, who'd been raised in Norway. He'd been raised outside of Paris in Versailles, and he'd been raised in the center of Paris. He was just getting ready to go off to university. It was right in that juncture as he's moving and then we are moving to Germany, to Munich that he's in his first week of university and he's in a water accident. And we can talk about that accident in its particulars, maybe deeper into our conversation. But the story is that he knew this group of students that he was with for about one week and one of these students was drowning. And Parker, who was a star athlete, went in twice to try and extract this new friend of his from the water. There were other students there that did heroic things as well that tried to save lives. At one point in this canal where they were swimming, there were five, I think, young boys that were all sucked into a whirlpool um, in a canal. And the boy that Parker went in after survived. And then I got a phone call at 11 o'clock that night. I happened to have just arrived from the move in Germany to Utah to visit my son during his first week of university, I got a phone call from a 
an unidentified male voice at 11 o'clock at night. They had somehow traced me down to my parents' home number. And they said, is this the mother of Parker Bradford? Stay on the line. You're going to get a really important phone call in a moment. So I immediately called my husband, who was still unpacking boxes in Munich. It was 7 o'clock in the morning for him. And I said, honey, stay on the line. Something's happened. I don't know what it is. And I was thinking anything could have happened. Maybe, maybe he fell asleep on the floor of someone else's apartment, or was he playing his bongo drums too loud? Because just the day before I had delivered him his great big African drum that he played so beautifully, because he said that he missed it. So I had seen him the day before. But that wasn't it, Richard. The next voice was the voice of somebody at the Portneuf um, Hospital Regional Medical Center in Pocatello. And he said, there's been a terrible water accident. And it was in one of those darn irrigation canals and no one could have seen it. And you know how people always get caught up in those irrigation canals, Mrs. Bradford. And I said to myself, no, I don't know about those things. I don't know anything about irrigation canals. And um, he was very kind. He said, you'll want to come here as quickly as you can, but don't, don't cause another emergency. And uh, you're son is stable, which I understood much later was that they were just keeping him there in a deep coma until we could all gather. So I called my husband in Munich and I said, get to Idaho as fast as you can. And then I started driving in the middle of the night and had, um, I believe that I was, it felt when I arrived there that there were somehow train tracks and my car had been on them and I had just been sort of conducted to the very parking space and I arrived there um, very calm at that point somehow even though I was trying to call people all along the way including my parents who were vacationing in Colorado and I was leaving messages with them just come something terrible has happened come 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 and I look at my mother now and I think of her driving in the middle of the night, holding a map in her lap with my father, driving those many, many hours to try and arrive at this regional medical center. Well, I, I walked in that room and there was my beautiful son who the day before when I had visited him had been this tall, strong, self-possessed, happy, buoyant I'm exactly where I need to be. I'm feeling great. This is where I want to be. And there he lay face down in a neck brace on a ventilator, wow. like a toppled statue. And um, I wasn't told, actually, whether he was in a coma. I wasn't told anything. I couldn't understand why they had him on his stomach. Um, I was just there observing my son and to truncate the story, what happened there, Richard, was um, it was horror and holiness in the same place. I experienced things there at the side of my son's body that taught me things that have been an anchor for me since. And here are some of them. Life is eternal. Those who have parted or are parting their bodies can communicate with us. Their spirits linger close. 
And my son talked with me. His spirit spoke with me in complete ideas. And one of them was that he was so thankful that I was his mother, which was what I needed to hear because I was always sort of insecure as a mother. I thought, I'm not good at this. I'm not a natural. I've never even made brownies. What am (laughs) I doing in this role? (laughs) And then another was that I felt an overwhelming, engulfing, elevating sense of God's love for this child. And I'm a mom. You're a dad. Mom, you're a mom. We pick on our kids, right? We say, why don't you cut your hair like that? And please don't wear that t-shirt. And would you please sit up straight? And are you biting your nails again? You know, we're sort of, we think that that's our job as parents to somehow (laughs) pumice our children into the exact human being that we want. I felt God communicating to me that this child was known and this child's goodness and light was almost literally bursting his skin. He was so great. And I thought, wait, but he never, he never really threw away those pizza boxes from underneath his bed. And I think he kissed maybe a couple of girls too many. And he didn't raise that C plus to a B minus. He didn't do that. (laughs) And he never unrolled his sports socks before he threw them into the laundry bin. And all of those things I understood to be absolutely inconsequential, that that this boy was greater than I had even understood. And the follow-up thought was, if that is true about him, it must be true about all of us. Wow. Maybe it's true about me. Maybe I'm actually a far greater and more divine being than I ever even allow myself to be. That was a monumental lesson for me to learn in that moment of horror. We, uh, <laughs> we were blessed to have beautiful, beautiful friends around the world and close by. And people came. They came to the ICU. They flew in from Boston. They flew in from California. Our dear friend, our, our beautiful friend Maya was there. My parents drove for hours to make it to where we are relatives, my aunt and uncle, people gathered. And then there was a virtual gathering. This is important for our, our, our listeners to, to sort of grab onto and think about that even if you cannot be with the grieving, that you can offer your support from far away. So we had just moved from Paris, as I mentioned to you. The whole Paris steak was alerted, and they had a steak-wide fast. Wow. And people were calling in from Paris. Then we were moving to Munich, and the Munich steak was alerted. And so there were members in Munich that never knew us, didn't know our story, but they were also praying and fasting for us. So that sort of, that sense of community, even if it isn't literal, that figurative sense of we belong together, we will grieve with you was empowering. And we'll get back to this, I think, in our conversation. Well, my husband arrived indeed from Munich, burst through the doors, and then we had a few hours to be together there with our, with our beautiful son, our children, our three younger children, 
at that time almost 16 years old, 11 years old, and 7 years old were brought to the ICU. And, um, and we held vigil around that gurney until the doctor said, there's no more brain activity here. There's less than a 2% chance that he can have any sort of viable existence. So we'll let you make the decision. And it was very clear to us that we would turn off life support. And in that moment that we did, or the moment before we did, we gathered some essential people around his gurney and we did what we do in our family and we started to sing. And I began by singing, I know that my Redeemer lives. And everyone around the gurney sang with us and we're singers <laughs> so there was harmony you know my mormon tabernacle choir singing mother and my mormon tabernacle choir singing brother and we sang our child out and then we turned off the ventilator and i thought that people just sort of melt away they don't actually he his body took a last gasp and then his head tipped to the side and the whole universe sort of spilled off down a slope for me. And I felt a physical impact like somebody had put a two by four through my gut. And I felt like I died. And maybe we can take a little breath right there. <sighs> it's just sacred ground. It's so thoughtful of you to share these very tender personal i'm seeing tears in your mom's eyes she's there with you yeah. she's here now and it helps other people to hear these experiences yeah so thank you for your courage and you your vocabulary and your insights to share mm. had some time to find words for it but at the beginning i'll tell you something richard i went through a language crisis like i thought I was a writer before that. I was a speaker before that. I was really comfortable in the world of words, but this, this thing that happened, there was no vocabulary for it. So I went really silent, silent. Not at the funeral, however. This is maybe something that will help our, our listeners. Is that one great American writer, Joan Didion, uh, in her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, she says, you know, don't be fooled by the funeral. The funeral is anodyne. So when you go to a funeral and you see people looking, quote unquote, strong, looking like they've got it all together again, the funeral is a special sort of incubation place where, at least I experienced it, I couldn't, not that I wouldn't allow myself, but I didn't feel like I needed to fall apart because I was held up on all sides. We felt Parker palpably with us. We had people from around the world who had made the great sacrifice of love to come and sit in a steakhouse with us. Of course, a lot of them were non-LDS, and so they wrote to us and they said, why are we having a funeral in a steakhouse? <laughs> we had to explain that it wasn't S-T-E-A-K. <laughs> so there was all of this love, and it was love that held us up together, and, and we actually thought, whew, the worst is behind us. Now it's all, all going to be sort of downhill from here. 
Well, it's not until the funeral flowers have wilted and people have gone back to their own lives. You get on a plane and you fly to a different country. Wow. And you pull out a key and you put it in a door to a home, an apartment in our case, that your kids have never seen before. There's going to be a new neighborhood, a new ward, a new school, a new bus route, a new language, a new culture, a new way, and no one there who knew you as an intact family. So this complicated our grief journey, if I might put it that way. And for months that we were there in Munich, I just refused to unpack boxes because I was determined we were going to go back to our people who were in, who were in Paris, to our community. It was our daughter, Claire, who had turned 16 the week between her elder brother and her best friend's death and his funeral, who said to us, she had had a spiritual prompting. She's a very spiritual person. And she said, we need to stay in Munich. We need to stay here. And we trusted that. And here's what happened, Richard. I realized only in retrospect that had we gone back to France, to the terrain where we had lived before and been certain people, I probably would have felt um, not forced, but I would have felt the necessity to be that person. I would have felt the necessity to be high energy, nothing's wrong. We're going to entertain everyone, everyone in and out of our house all of the time, the way that we lived in Paris. What happened in Munich, which again felt cruel at the beginning because there was no one that I could talk with who recognized that I had a two foot wide hole in the middle of my torso. I was walking everywhere with this hole right through my stomach that wind whistled through. No one saw it. No one understood why I was broken or antisocial. What that allowed me, however, was something that has a a specific term in, in Jewish culture, the Jewish grieving process. And the term is avalut, A-V-E-L-U-T. And what the Jews do, particularly in the case when a child has lost a parent or a parent has lost a child, is they do an entire year of intensive, reclusive, spiritual retreat. And that's what I got. I didn't talk with anyone except on Sundays when we went to church. And all of my friends that were in that ward know I hardly talked. (laughs) I could hardly speak. I wept through every single meeting. But at home, I used that time in this apartment, separated from everyone, to do what I had done every time we moved to a new country. Every time we moved to a new country, I got out the maps and the books from the experts in that country who told me how to live there. I learned the language. I figured out the customs. I knew exactly what the, you know, what my roots were everywhere. And I did the same thing with the land of grief. I found every specialist and expert that I could, LDS, non-LDS, Western, Eastern, pioneer journals, prophets, gurus, Holocaust survivors, 9-11 survivors, tsunami survivors, and I read their books. I read 
nonstop. I would sit on my floor with like a mountain range of books Mm -hmm. around me and I would weep and read and type things in my laptop and weep and read and type things in my laptop until I had hundreds and hundreds of pages of some of the wisest voices about the experience of loss. For me, specifically death. But you know as well as I do that loss has countless iterations. But I was just dealing with a very particular one, and that was the loss of our son. And so I gathered and gathered and gathered, and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, because I could hardly speak. I couldn't find, I just couldn't find someone to connect with that I could open my mouth to. And maybe I was afraid that if I started talking, that I would fly into a billion pieces of shattered soul. So I started writing this book. And um, it's actually the second book that I published because the first one uh, was one that a publisher asked me to write about being a global citizen. But you see how all of this sort of intersects. It's this moving from a new country, from a country that you know well to another one, which is hard enough. It's hard enough on its own, even in the most privileged circumstances, but it's moving and in the middle of that cataclysm. And how do you rebuild from cataclysm? With whom do you rebuild? Can you rebuild? How long does it take? What does it look like? Um, and that's what I was figuring out in that first, first year or two in Munich. And it was very, very spiritual. So we realized that in order for us to feel well, this is Randall and myself, my wonderful husband, in order for us to feel well and sort of hold the family together, we had to be steady. And the steadiest place was really close to the spirit. So we fasted a lot. I'm, I'm not going to tell you how often or how long or whatever, because I don't, you know, I don't want to sound like a crazy person. Um, And I wouldn't want any of our readers to think, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to stop eating. But we felt that we needed to fast often, um, more than we had ever fasted before in our life. And and study and pray and study and pray. And we, another thing you do in Avalut is that you block out all worldly distractions. So there was no Netflix surfing. There was no mall hopping, shopping. There were no iTunes playlists. It was like, literally like a monastery. We just kept our place in our lives as free from worldly distractions as we could. And I believe that it's because of that, those actions, those micro actions that we took over a long time that we could feel Parker really close to us and he could reveal things to us. And he did. And the Spirit could reveal things to us, and the Spirit did. And we were guided. We were guided to discover things that no one else had known about the accident. Everyone had kind of walked away from the accident. They didn't know really, how did this happen with 21 students there in the broad daylight? How does this happen? Well, we were guided with specific revelation, I'll just say it, (laughs) specific, like word for word, jot and tittle revelation to talk with certain people and go to certain places and and find out things about the accident. 
And then other things like what do we do with our future and how can we how can we help our children and how do we how do we live our faith when we're when we're so so broken what does god want us to do with all of this um cuz we could barely walk upstairs you know major trauma like that it 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 blows a hole through you and and it takes olympic strength to carry it i would have never known it had i not experienced it cuz my husband and i used to run in 10k's together and i'll just reveal something here too i used to teach aerobics so in a previous life i used to teach aerobics so i'm kind of an energetic guy we could girl we could barely lift our arms we could barely walk up stairs it, it it hits you very hard in fact there's a if i can just add this there's an excellent book that i always recommend to people who have experienced traumatic loss and it's from dr bessel van der kolk it's called the body keeps the score and it teaches us how our body actually is imprinted with psychological, emotional, spiritual um, imprint when we're hurt. And we were experiencing this in our bodies. So during Avalut, that first year when we really hunkered down and focused on spiritual things in a way that we never had before, we learned things that we never could have learned, I'm convinced, in any other way. So receiving, like I said, direct, direct jot and tittle revelation um, that we needed and things that we needed for our children. And also that we were given like spiritual ballast and, and, and muscle again um, that rejuvenated us. It tells us that the atonement isn't just for sin, not just for the resurrection. It's actually an enabling power. And we got that power. Um, we got a great deal of power that, I swear, with, without which I wouldn't be able to be sitting here. It is all because of the Savior's atonement. So, uh, if I sort of go ahead in the story, we gradually, not just because of time, but because of the work that we put in and the love that we received over time we started feeling capable of standing and running and biking and smiling. I can remember the first time I smiled. I can remember the first time we laughed um, after this tragic event in our lives. And, um, and I got to a point where I could then um, speak publicly. And it's actually all I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was to testify of what we had learned. and. And help maybe other people understand how they can help the grieving. Because we humans do a wonderful job at some things. And then we're miserable at some other things sometimes. And I, I'm sure that I've been a miserable comforter. <laughs> and I wanted to help other people know the sorts of things that we can do, particularly in our, in our LDS community, that might bless those who are, that are grieving. So. Um, I, I wrote after a, another move to another country, I, I wrote a book about our family, um, Global Mom, a memoir, which has at its very heart, the story of Parker. So the reader watches him grow up and then from one page to the next meets us in the ICU and then oh. experiences our family's deep 
deep, debilitating grief. And then how, with the help of God and godly people, how we've come to where we are now. And then I wrote or published the next book, which was a compilation of all of that work I had done during that year or two of Avalut, of just collecting wisdom and, and power from other voices. And then how far do you want to go in that story? Because um, I can tell a lot. We could, we could pause and just talk about the things that we've learned about what to do and what not to do in the face of grief. I think that'd be great. I just trust you to know where you want, where the spirit should take you. So, well, you're opening this book right now. I am, I'd love I'm you opening to, up the book right now. Um, and tell our listeners just the title of this the, book. The, the title is On Loss and Living Onward. And then the subtitle is Collected Voices for the Grieving and Those Who Would Mourn With Them. It's from the wonderful publishing house, Familius, um, wonderful people that worked with me on the first book and then were so gracious to do this second work. And they really created a beautiful, a beautiful book. And, and what I found is that I end up giving this book as a gift probably every couple of weeks I'm, I'm sending this book to somebody somewhere in the world um, as a gift to their family members or for themselves because there are so many, so many experiences with, with death. But it's, it doesn't just, it's not limited just to the experience of death. There are many other kinds of loss. Um, and we could go down, down that list, and you're an expert in this area, Richard. You have people at this table with you who have lived lives of loss and uh, loss of relationships and loss of identity and loss of faith and loss of uh, dreams for the future and anticipated loss, etc. So you know that. Listeners, I, um, all the, the three books that Melissa is talking about will link in the show notes. So if you're okay. trying to get the title in your okay. writing, just know that it's going to be in the show notes and we'll link to Amazon where you can get them. So keep sharing. Thank you. So what, what, what this book specifically about grief and mourning, what it helps us with is that it is a compilation of many of these quotes that I selected that I distilled. And in between these sections of quotes are then my personal essays. And, and I'll, just, I'll just peek inside the inside to give you sort of an idea of, of what the table of contents is about. It's, it's life at death and love at death and living after death and learning from death and light, love, and life over death. So those are the five parts of the book. And that's how I organized it from, you know, the, that crashing, obliterating feeling of traumatic loss, which we had. What it's like when you're living and you experience the death of your beloved suddenly. Or it could be the day that you get the diagnosis, like my beloved friend, a young mother of three children who from one day to the next was diagnosed with stage four inoperable colon cancer. What does that blow do to her and to her life? And she's living now through months and months and now years of anticipatory grief, a different kind of grief, but a grief that we could do well to understand so that we can accompany people through those journeys. 
And then love at death. I believe that the love that causes grief, the love that that drives us to our knees in adoration of someone is the same love that drives us to our knees in grief when they are taken from us. But it's also that same capacity to love that is the very power that will make us whole again. It's the love of in our community. It's the love that God showers out, pours out on us in that experience. It is love that is healing. And then living after death, what do, what do you do when you walk back into the house and the house is empty of that person? When you have to go through holidays, a Father's Day, for instance, the first Father's Day without my dad who died six months ago, the first birthday, the first Christmas. How do those landmarks feel when the person, when their absence is even bigger than their presence was? Wow. How, do we, how do we deal with that? And then learning from death. I think gr- death is the great educator. And Joseph Smith even said, we should talk and think about death a lot more than we do. It will change the way that we live our days. It will boldface experiences. It will help us make better decisions. It will help us look past the, the little irritants of today because we know that our life is sand dripping through the hourglass. You know, it's, it's fleeting and we won't have this time back again. So what can we learn from death? And then what my belief is that life and love and life and light, that's what I wrote, um, actually conquer death. We will be carried on through and after death. Here's what people ask. They say, how can I help my friend whose husband just died last week on vacation in Fiji? This is the true story. This is my story. One of my dearest lifelong friends contacted me and said, my husband James has just died. We were on vacation. What do we do? How do we respond when we hear that terrible news? Here are some suggestions. I'm just going to read. I'm going to do a lightning round. And I'm just going to read through these things. Here are some things to do and to say. Say, I love you. You are not alone. I am with you. I remember when, and then don't fear to say the deceased's name and talk about him or her. Come quickly without any expectations. If you can come physically, that's great. It doesn't mean we need to ambush, but show up in some way. If you can't come physically, send a text, send a message, leave a voicemail. Stay as long as you sense you are welcome. Do not ask if you can help. Just help with practical things. There's so many practical things that crowd around a death. And it's absolutely overwhelming to think that you have to make these major decisions when you are so compromised. So we had beautiful family and friends that came and took care of so many practical uh, necessities with the funeral and, and otherwise. If you feel shocked, awkward, without words, or devastated or nervous, just say so. You don't have to recite poetry. You don't have to come with a perfect Hallmark card. You don't have to give a sermon for goodness sakes. This is not the time. Save that for later. Just say, I'm 
shocked. I don't know what to say. Listen first. There are no speeches that are needed. Then come back and come back again. Bring food, bring help, and quiet wisdom. Share some special music. One of our common friends, Richard, Maya, immediately sent me music. And another friend sent me music. And whenever I hear that music, it takes me to that very sacred juncture in our life, that zero point, and brings the spirit. A gentle communicative touch, an hour or more of your time just listening, regular emails or texts, short but reassuring, just, I'm thinking of you today. I have not forgotten what pain you're in. I'm here. You're in my thoughts. Another one, warm food in your best dishes. You can also simply wash the dishes that are piling up in the sink. Remember the bereaved around holidays, birthdays, and the anniversary of the death. Those dates can be especially painful. Here's another one. Suggest establishing an annual marking of the deceased's birth or the death date. Join in a service project done in the deceased's memory. Send a handwritten card. Send any photos you have of the deceased. And I love that. I love to this day when, when some of Parker's friends say, oh, I forgot to send you this particular photo from this sports trip. I mean, it's been a few years for us, but I, it's like discovering him all over again if I find new photos of him. Plant trees or flowers in the deceased memory. Arrange memorial services at school, work, church, clubs. Establish a scholarship or a fund in the deceased's honor. There are people that are maybe listening to us today that were part of the battalion of good souls that contributed to a music scholarship at BYU-Idaho in our son's name. They showed up. They did something practical that will, that will keep Parker contributing to this world in perpetuity. Just beautiful, beautiful. Suggest others who are similarly bereaved with whom the survivors might take up contact. We really wanted that. We really wanted to sort of sit down and check the pulse of somebody who had lost a child similarly maybe three years ago or eight years ago or even 10 years ago and find out for them, how did you do it? And when did you start not shaking? When were you able to appear in public without just randomly collapsing in tears? That was important for us. Compose music or write poetry or create any other artistic rendition in memory of the deceased. Care for the physical needs of the home, the car, the yard, the laundry, the pets, the children, right? Because your bereaved friend is, again, they're carrying the weight of the world on their backs. And it takes Olympic strength to try and carry that sort of grief. Um, and do this for as long as it takes. A note on that. Let me just put my book down for a sec. Conventional comfort is always outlasted by normal grief. So grief lasts much, much longer than we think people need to grieve. So we might walk up to somebody six weeks after their wife died and say, how you doing? How you doing, Bill? Are you doing all are you, are you going to be dating soon? <laughs> so Bill has barely found his pulse. He's barely able to walk down the grocery store aisle at six weeks, six months. 
It's different for everybody, but it takes much, much longer than the newly bereaved or the observers of grief ever think is true. Oh. Much, much longer. So if you think three years down the road that, hey, I remember that that couple lost their child. Follow that prompting and send them a message and say, it's been three years and I'm still thinking about Lucy. I'm still thinking about beautiful Lucy. And I can promise you that that will be a godsend in their life because three years is no time in grief time. It's no time in grief time. So take it farther than you think it needs to be taken and don't insist on a timeline for anyone who's grieving that tapping on your watch. Well, you know, it's been a year. You should be back to yourself. You're never going to be back to yourself. You're never going to be back to the person you would. And why would you want to be completely? You've been altered by this. It's an opportunity for profound change. Give a special notebook book for the bereaved to record thoughts, scriptures, dreams, and impressions. Offer literature that builds strength and courage. Inspirational addresses through internet or other sources. Avoid rowdiness or irreverence in the bereaved, in the bereaved's presence. Unless in the rare case, they actually want that. There are people who just want, like, give me all of the kazoos and all of the confetti and all of the loud, loud music. I, that's what I want. And I've seen that happen, too. So you can follow the bereaved lead. Suggest going on a walk in nature together. And then do all of the above for a much longer duration of time than you have previously thought. Remember that grief always outlasts conventional comfort. Can I... Can I mention one more thing? Uh, there is something that I hear come up in conversation frequently when we talk about grief. And, and I, I present on this quite a bit and I've talked in a lot of grief groups and people say, well, you know, there are those stages of grief and I don't think you've been through stage three and you haven't been through um, anger yet, etc." I just want to give a little caveat about the stages of grief. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the one who authored the idea about the stages of grief. She was talking about one's own death. So when you are like my friend Sarah, who has been diagnosed with stage four inoperable colon cancer, those stages of grief, according to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, apply to the person who's anticipating their own death. They are not applicable to someone else who's observing someone else's death. And she came back later and said, folks, you've misconstrued my original theories. It's not what I meant at all. It's not what I meant at all. So maybe that's important for us to understand that we can't stand by someone and say, oh, did you see, did you see John today in the frozen food session? I think he's in the angry stage, mm -hmm. right? The actual trajectory of grief is like the wildest amusement park ride from hell that you have <laughs> ever, ever seen. It goes up and down. It loops back. It's unpredictable. It comes like a wave and it slaps you down when you least expect it, especially in early grief. So there is nothing predictable about grief. And the stages of grief were intended to describe the process that someone goes through when they're anticipating their own grief, anger, the bargaining with God, et cetera. It's not about those of us who are reeling from the grief of losing someone else. Okay. Does that help us just a little bit? That's great. Yeah. So there's no timeline. Every grief is going to be different. Um, there tends to be a, 
a a need in Western culture in particular to rush grief. And we could talk about that for a long time, why that is. But Western culture wants to dampen, suffocate, hide, and, and shorten grief. In fact, Interesting. in some professional journals, if you're still kind of fuzzy in the head or maybe crying uncontrolled but once in a while, like 18 months after the sudden death of your child, they categorize that as something pathological. But it's not. It's not at all. Other cultures understand that grief will follow you. It will be absorbed in you on one level or another for the rest of your life. It will be part of who you are. Some of that might come from Freud. So Freud, the father of modern psychology, had no belief in an afterlife. And so he said that anyone who's keening, reeling, weeping, longing for the, longing for the beloved who has died, they're ill. I just call that fraudulent. <laughs> That's just totally fraudulent. <laughs> There's a new school of, of grief and mourning um, study, bereavement study. Uh, and I could name all of the names of some of these researchers, but they say the new, the new movement in grief theory is that our job as people who are trying to love and support carry the burdens of, mourn with, and comfort our bereaved friends is to help them understand that death ends a mortality, but it doesn't end a relationship. We're part of continuing a relationship with those that have gone before us. And I've experienced this in a really concrete way that Parker has not been absent. He's been invisible, but he hasn't been absent. And there are ways that he remains involved in our lives. And shouldn't we, as believers in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, think that? Shouldn't we, of all people, sort of model with all of our temple work? With all of our gathering of names, with all of our belief in the continual bonds between the spirit world and the mortal world, shouldn't we be helping our bereaved neighbors understand that that relationship goes on and your grief is part of the love that you have felt for this person and Yes, we know that we will see them again, but we can actually live in harmony doing work with them right here and now. And for me, that's the true comfort, that I'm not waiting for another 30 or 40 years until I cross through that plasma wall into the spirit world to be with my son, but that I'm actually working hand in hand with him now. He's here. He's ministering to my family. He's ministering to his siblings. He ministers to his grandmother. He's, he's involved in our lives now. Don't you think that's a... That's awesome. Don't you think that's a kind of a beautiful way? It's a beautiful. Of, yeah. So that's, that's the way that I approach or live with grief now. And, um, and I can only feel grateful for that, for that gospel knowledge, but also the lived experience of that. I have a whole other section in this book that says, Please do not do this. Would you like me to go ahead? Really? Because it's kind of a downer. Because as I read it, I realize, hey, wait just a second. I've done all of these. <laughs> and just, I'm glad you're going to do that session because I've I thought 
you know, this is a great book, obviously, to read if you've just lost somebody. But I also think listeners, and I think this section will highlight it, if you haven't lost anybody or you're you're going to lose somebody or you're going to have to minister to somebody that has lost somebody. And so this is a section of the book that gives you advanced tools to get you in a better space so that when you get that call, you'll have better tools. So I'm really glad you're going to share this section because this is a section that's probably I'm going to learn. I'm learning the whole podcast, but mm-hmm. I will hear some things that will really help me as I help others or try yeah. to help others. So please yeah. go for it. Yeah, because it's the very center of our Christian covenant, isn't it? Alma said it at the Waters of Mormon. We've got it right there in Mosiah 18. Do you want to be part of this fold of Christ? Well, interestingly enough, he doesn't start listing, you know, you need to have three years of food storage and you need to also have an Eagle Scout award. Nothing against any of those things, but he says those are not, those are not the essentials for being part of the body of Christ. You carry one another's burdens. You mourn with those that mourn. You comfort those that stand in need of comfort and you stand as a witness of God and in all times and things and places. You stand in for God. You give a knowledge of God, which is giving strength to others. So it really is, for me, it's the essence of discipleship. It is the very essence. It is what you do so, so well. Richard, if I can just give you a little plug right here. (laughs) So here is another section. This is appendix in the back of the book that says, do not do or say these things. Donna's already cringing. Your mom <laughs> knows what's in here. <laughs> I think you both know this is part of your journey. Again, I've, 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 I've done these things, and I've also experienced some of these things um, meted out on me too. So I know, I know how they can hurt, or at least they can't. They don't help, and they don't build community. What we want to do is we want to build community. Um, saying, I understand just how you feel. Well, we don't, because every grief is absolutely unique. Another mother can lose her child, named Parker, drowning. I know a woman who lost her child, named Parker, in a drowning accident. But her experience is very different. Her community is different. Her relationship with him is different. So I can say, I think I might understand a measure of what you feel. But you can't say, I understand just how you feel. Next one, something a lot worse than that happened to me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I call that grief Olympics. <laughs> it's grief Olympics. It's, oh, really? You lost one child? Well, I know somebody who lost two children. Or, oh, your husband committed suicide? Well, I know a woman whose husband committed suicide and his son, her son. Or we go down the list. Comparisons will never, ever help us in grief. They will not help us in grief. It shifts the focus. It doesn't let me be present for you. That's right. If I've just shifted the focus to somebody else's story. That's right. That's right. The person who is in deep grief feels in that moment that it is the greatest grief that has ever happened in the history of humanity on this planet. And they should feel that. should feel that. Yeah. No matter what the grief, no matter what the story, it's not our job as a friend to that person to quantify or to categorize that grief. It simply isn't. Ours is to sit and listen and to validate everything that they are feeling. The next one, he lived a long life. He was ready to go. There's still grief. My father lived for 88 rich years. You think that his wife, who loved him well for 63 years, has not felt grief 
She's holding up a five. <laughs> oh, 65 years, 65 years of love. That's right. That's right. Uh, yes. you're, you're both right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Aren't you over the death of your loved one yet? Mm. Oh. It's more about me wanting to not yeah. have to be present for the complexities of your life than yeah. you. Yeah, you're, you're making me really uncomfortable. We used to go fishing all the time. What do you mean you don't want to go fish? You're not the same old guy you were. That is not our job. It's simply not our job to tell someone what their emotional timeline should be. Another one, and we hear this a lot, bless our souls, but I'm going to say it. God took him. Mm. God needed or wanted him or her. Why do you think that's problematic, Richard? What does that do, for instance, for a child who's just lost their parent to a horrific accident? Complicates the relationship with God. Thank you. Yeah. Who would that God be? And why does God need that person more than I do? I need that person. I remember wailing on the tiles of my kitchen floor in the middle of the night and saying, I need my son back. I need him. I need him in my life. I need him. I'm the parent and I needed my child. And um, yes, and there were people who said, Ah, he's just gone on another mission. Mm. Let me just add a little asterisk to the bottom of this page. If we ever use the words just or only when we're trying to comfort someone, we've blown it <laughs> right there. He's, you're just going to be separated from him for 10 years. You're, he's just gone on a mission. It was only a matter of time before he was going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. those, those words minimize this colossal impact. And again, we then distance ourselves from our friend who's gasping, barely making it through the day. Here's another one. God gave you this trial to make you stronger. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm cringing. <laughs> and listeners, I probably said or thought these very same things. I'm sure that I've done it. I'm sure I've done it, but I would try really hard not to now. It's God's will. It's God's will. Who are we to define what's God's will? Uh, who are we to define that? A wonderful author, William Sloan Coffin. His son died when his son drove a car off a bay in Boston. And William Sloan Coffin is a thunderous preacher, thunderous preacher. And when people came trying to offer him comfort after his son had died in this car, this woman said, I just don't understand God's will. And he swung around and he said, don't talk to me about God's will. God did not cause that car to go into the bay. God doesn't go around with his finger on triggers or his hands around knives. God does not will our deaths. And it really gave me a fresh perspective. And I think it's helpful for people who also have been witnesses to horrific deaths. And I have many friends in that category horrific, where their family members are mutilated and tortured and or they're found under rubble after a bomb or whatever. Again, it complicates our, our, our relationship, I think, with a loving Heavenly Father. I think, and this is what William Sloan Coffin says in a sermon about his own son's death. He says, when the water closed over my son's car, God was the first to weep. 
maybe that's the answer, is to say, remember God from the book of Moses? Remember? He's weeping. He's weeping also. Christ wept. Minutes before he was going to raise Lazarus from the tomb, he wept. He understood the gravity of the moment. And I think when we try to speak for God and say this is exactly what God wanted, we might really confuse someone about their relationship with God. Does that make sense? Yes. God doesn't give us more than we can bear. That's assuming that, you know, God is giving us everything in life. The, the logic there is a little bit bent. If you have enough faith, she will get well. Mm. For someone who exercised her faith, every bit of her faith, and she watched her husband die, or she watched, like my friend Angela, who watched her son Wyatt die. Do you think it was a, the weakness of her faith? Or my friend Sarah, who's running out of options in her life now, fighting with faith, tooth and nail, with everything that science can offer, everything that God gives us with, by way of priesthood blessings and temple attendance. Is it her faith that failed? The assumption would be then that Christ could have healed everyone. Why didn't Christ just heal everyone? Why does there even have to be death? Why does death, why does illness even have to happen? Is it just a lack of our faith? No, it's not. A wise woman, my friend Bonnie Jean, was standing with me at the foot of Parker's gurney there in the ICU. She was one of the wise women who came and shared those sacred hours with me. And my spiritual motor was churning like the motor of the Titanic. Like, I'm going to turn this ship around. He's going to sit right up from this gurney and he will be well because I have that kind of faith. My friend Bonnie Jean put her hand between her sho- my shoulder blades on my back, and she just said, not even looking at me, just sort of looking at Parker's beautiful body, and she said, Melissa, what is the greater miracle, healing or comfort? And I have chewed on that one for years. You know, they're the same thing, whether from grave sin, grave sorrow, or from the grave itself. Christ conquers death. So the fact that I'm able to sit here and I can speak with you and I can laugh and I can feel joy in my life is evidence for me that the atonement does what we're promised it does. It gives us new life. It's raised me from the grave. And um, it's the atonement that does it. It's not my faith alone. Here's another one. He is much better off in heaven. He's happier there. My mom is apoplectic over here. She's just waving her arm. <laughs> Let me share something very, very personal. I hadn't planned on sharing this, but I, I feel that it's appropriate. In the first 24 hours after we turned off life support and we saw our son's body slump and then go cold, I had a beautiful gift from heaven, and that was to actually, in my calling out and my crying back in my childhood bedroom, <laughs> in my parents' home, was crying out to God and to crying out to Parker where I need to see you. I need to know where you are. I need to see you. And it was like curtains opened in my mind and there was a fuzzy sort of, sort of a nebulous background and there stood Parker in sort of an iridescent robe. And I'm going to tell you something, Richard. He did not look like it was a party. He wasn't 
buoyant. He was heavy-hearted. He saw what had happened, and he saw his entire family devastated. He saw, he must have seen his friends all around the world, you know, shocked and weeping. And he loved life. At 18, when his life is just launching, he didn't think that he was going to, when he went back into the water to extract this friend, he wasn't, that wasn't going to be the last act of his mortality. So I think we might say things that we don't have complete evidence for. There's heavy heartedness too uh, when we enter into the spirit world and I've seen it. And I've seen him at least in dream form since and his manner has become a little lighter, but that was, was hard for him as well. Hard for him to leave his family. I love that. I love that. Do you? I think it shows him he's human. He's a spirit. He's emotion. He's aware of all the people that love him. Yeah. He's grieving his mortality. I don't know all the things that Parker felt, but I love listeners at times. I don't know if you can do this. I've put names on the temple pearl of people that have died because I felt they're sad. Absolutely. And I felt they had the evidence understanding the plan of salvation they're with god but they're sad there are people they love where yeah. they and they see so i love that mm. I thank think you it's, for sharing that yeah also what that does is that it tells the person who's left behind that they weren't happy enough with them you know yeah. <laughs> something was wrong with their life with you he's going to be happier where he is because your child took his own life you will never be together in the eternities. Mm. i actually stood by and heard someone say that to someone passing judgment again oh. uh, on someone who took their own life. We don't know what we're talking about. And, and that absolutely is not true. There is a reason for everything. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't buy that. I think that we can create reason. I think we can create meaning out of, out of horrible, horrible situations. But um, I think if we spend our life trying to find meaning in every single fluke that can happen in a mortal, broken world, then we might be disappointed. Here's another one. Count your blessings. Mm. Only the good die young. Your loved one is freed from this terrible world. You have an angel in heaven. She has only been transferred to a new mission. Keep the faith. Put it behind you and get on with your life. Mm. Time will heal everything. Mm. Ah, Tell that to an amputee, right? Time doesn't necessarily heal all things. The use of time, I believe, the way that we use and employ time can help us be better. But time alone, the passage of time is not going to heal everything. Be strong. Keep your chin up. Get over it. Move on. There are worse things that could have happened. Let me get you out of this funk. Don't let your children see you being weak. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't cry. You'll see him again. Don't cry. You'll make things worse. Don't cry. You'll hold your deceased back from progressing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so those are probably not the most helpful things to say. Um, at some point, maybe the bereaved themselves might say some iteration of those things, but that's their right to do that. It doesn't help us to say those things. And yes, I, I will see Parker again. I have zero doubt of that. I have zero doubt. But for someone else 
to minimize my my sorrow in the moment by saying, don't you remember the plan of happiness? You're going to see him again. means that they aren't sharing in my grief. They're already over it. And what we need in grief is someone to come and sit next to us on our mourning bench. Just come and sit next to us where we're mourning and feel it with us. Let us feel it in all of its ugliness, in its wailing, in its anger, in its silence, in its complete discombobulated, I'm in a, I'm in a haze. Just come and sit with me and feel it with me. That's why I think Alma is so wise in Mosiah 18 in saying we bear one another's burdens. He actually has a chronology in those descriptors of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He says we bear one another's burdens. And that's first. And you can't bear burdens unless you get close. You can't help anybody lift anything if you're on the other side of the room. (laughs) So you get close however you can get close. And then, then you mourn with them. Before you get to the comforting, they're there part, you mourn with them and you mourn it in full Dolby sound, you know, amplitude. Mourn with the people. And then we will discover that in that mourning, we actually have relieved a burden. We have actually comforted. There was a sister who moved into the ward in Munich a year after we had been there. And that first full year, wow, we, you think I'm exaggerating. We wept through every meeting. We just wept in this teeny little ward. And I had a hard time talking, me, who can talk nonstop for hours. I had a hard time speaking at all. There was a woman who moved in. Her name was Jenny. And um, she met me and she heard somewhere about like a year ago, we had lost our son to this tragic event. And one day she said, would you mind if I just ask you some questions? She was the first who just wanted to ask me questions. I remember it was a very warm September, early September day. We went into a back room in the Hofbrunnstrasse. That's where it is in, in Munich. And we sat there. And that little room where we sat in, where she just asked me questions and then just allowed me to unburden my heart and weep until we were looking for paper towels. We were both just weeping together. That was one of the most cleansing, empowering, intimate, sacred moments that I can remember in our entire early journey through grief. Was the sister who said, just tell me what it was. And then she wept with me. It doesn't take poetic genius. It doesn't take a degree in social work. You don't have to have lost exactly like your friend has lost. But if you will allow yourself to just sit there, and this is kind of a scary place, right? Richard, sometimes we feel awkward that "Ah, we're too vulnerable. We might cry. We might lose composure. What if they think that we don't have faith because we're crying about someone that we know we're going to see again anyway. That experience of connecting with someone on that deep, raw level bonds us with that person forever. One of my mantras in life is we bond on our broken edges. It's exactly where we're broken that we connect with other people. And it doesn't have to be the same raw edge. 
I feel deeply connected with my friends whose marriages have died. I feel deeply connected with my friends who have battled through a sexual orientation crisis. I feel deeply bonded with people whose faith has evaporated, whose trust has evaporated, um, evaporated or vaporized. I feel bonded now. Maybe we'll move into this area with with refugees. Even though I don't speak the same language, we have vastly different life experiences. But when I sit face to face and I talk with a mother who was forcibly displaced from her home in Afghanistan, and she left behind a child, or somewhere in that three-month foot journey across the Middle East, to make it to safety, that she lost a child. Our hearts speak to one another, even though we're not speaking the same language. I can look in her eyes and I can understand something deeply human and also divine in that loss that she has experienced. And I'm telling you that it's been with these refugee populations, these hundreds and hundreds of people that I've been so blessed to work with from the Middle East and now from Ukraine that I have kind of recontextualized my own experience with loss because my experience with loss, as devastating as it was and still is, it was in the most privileged circumstances. It wasn't a stupid, senseless war. And I saw my son and I was with him. I didn't lose him to the Taliban. I didn't lose him to a Russian bomb. I got to bury him. I had community, you know. So these, these refugee families that I then got to be very involved in um, from where we live in the middle of Germany have taught me a whole new level of what it means to lose and what it means to grieve and what it means to be there for one another in really, really hard times. So um, maybe we want to talk about that just a little bit. Please. Is this a good segue? It's think? a great segue. So. And this is part of the golden triangle listeners that yeah. these three books, these, you know, yeah. the principles that apply to all of us in our individual journeys. Yes. So the first book that was published was Global Mom. So a very privileged story about moving across many, many countries and how hard that is. And it's serious hard, serious hard. It breaks some people. And then in the middle of that book, the story of Parker, the second book then is completely about loss through death, but it could apply to many different kinds of loss. And then the third book that I helped work on, it was definitely a group effort with um, uh, Twyla Bird as the main editor for this book. Very wise, very, very gifted woman, also led by Trisha Limer. We were all, well, Trisha and I were living in Frankfurt together and I had just moved there from Switzerland in 2014. And if you were watching the news, that's when the Syrian war broke out. And that's when hundreds and thousands of people were fleeing the Middle East. So all across the Middle East, it disrupted everything across that terrain. And they were coming in droves and Germany opened up its doors. And Angela Merkel at the time said, wir schaffen das, right? We can manage this. That was her famous line. We, we're going to manage it. And um, Frankfurt, where I was living, um, welcomed a preponderance of these people. So literally in the town that I was living in, hundreds upon hundreds of freshly arrived refugees came to our town. 
I was one of those who showed up at the train stations uh-huh. and, and, and was holding banners that said, Willkommen in Deutschland, you know, welcome to Germany and bringing baskets and baskets of food and fresh clothing and things like that to these people who were stumbling off of trains. They had just made it to a train somewhere in Western Europe and then in the clothing that they had left their homes in. Months, some, some of them had been walking for months. So they show up and this wise friend of mine, Trisha Limer, says, we're going to get involved, right? And I said, yeah, I know something about moving and I know something about loss and I know how to teach German because I taught at BYU and I taught at the MTC and my entire heart and soul just lunged toward this opportunity. So at the high school where Trisha's daughter, Natasha, was going to school, the local German high school, the parents got a letter on Friday saying, we are converting the sport hall, Sporthalle, the, the gymnasium, into an Erste Aufnahme Einrichtung, which is a long German comp- compound word that means a first reception center. These are people straight off the trail. And so 170 people from Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria are living on the bleachers of this high school gym. And they're sleeping in donated beds from Ikea, where I think we say Ikea here in, yeah, Ikea. And, um, and Trisha said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, what, you, you're great at doing certain things. She said, I'm great with knitting and needlework and crocheting. And I said, I don't know how to hold a needle, but these people have to learn German. So we did the security pass, the, the, the sort of background check, and I showed up and we started I started teaching German and these people, we had no common tongue. So it was a little bit different, amazingly, than teaching at the MTC. There was no common tongue. So I was a little bit of an aerobic teacher and a little Mm. bit of a German teacher and a lot of singing and a lot of entertaining. And we trailed those people for a very long time. So two, three years, we went to all the different facilities where they ended up living. And in the process, we founded a nonprofit, which is still going strong today, even though uh, both Trisha and I um, have gone on to doing other refugee uh, support work, but um, their story is our story is the name of this nonprofit that we helped found. And we collected refugee stories. And that is the background for this third book, The Bottom Corner of the Golden Triangle. And that's a compilation of these stories of people who have, have been driven. They're the people that you saw in the news, friends. They're people who got on inflatable rafts and floated from one shore in the middle of the night to another, people who didn't swim, people who had never lived around bodies of water, who held their toddlers in their laps or above their head while they're wearing life jackets, holding their baby above their head to keep them out of the water that's seeping into this raft, people who walked for two, three months over the mountain ranges of the Middle East who fought against smugglers and kidnappers and, and border guards with machine guns at every single border. You can understand as I'm describing this how that recontextualized how I viewed my very comfortable global trajectory where I had a passport and I had airplanes and I had hotel rooms and I had You know, I had an apartment that I could move into. These are people who carried one backpack in which they carried their prayer rug. You know, people with profound devotion to God who had only known war their whole lives. I've never known war. They were 
They lived and they raised their children surrounded by war. And they, loss was ubiquitous. <laughs> they had lost so many family members. I worked with people who had lost limbs. I worked with people who had buried multiple children. Um, and, and, and so we, we collected their stories, believing that, just like we're doing right now, like what you do, Richard, that sharing our stories at the bone, our private personal stories, they actually connect us. They create community. And they liberate other people to tell and live their story. So we collected. We had brilliant artists, brilliant photographers that all said, we want to be part of this. So we made, you know, presentations that we took to the UN and to many uh, institutions of higher learning and to many, many church groups in Europe and in the U.S. to educate people about this experience of loss and the thing at the end of it that has undergirded all of that. And it is God's great love for every child of humanity. And the faith that these people have exercised, where they said we had nothing but God, where they, they would literally fling themselves onto God's love the way they flung themselves onto a life raft to cross dark waters. That kind of faith really was humbling for me. And I thought, I knew a little bit about faith, but this is on a whole different level. So we worked closely with um, Middle Eastern and, and, and Middle Eastern refugees and also those that came also from Africa. And then when that had sort of, that it's sort of the, the, these people had been integrated and they were speaking beautiful German and they were educated in the local system and they were getting jobs and things. And we thought that things were really sort of over. Then war breaks out in Ukraine and Frankfurt becomes a major gathering center again. So for the last mm. year, I've been working with Ukrainian refugees and, um, and have learned a great deal about their culture, their faith, their resilience, their sense of community. So that's the most recent thing that I've been doing. Again, applying whatever Heavenly Father has put in my path to try to be useful, try to be useful and, um, and to learn. Listeners, sometimes I just don't know what to say because I worry whatever I'll say will take away from my guest, Melissa Dalton-Bradford. It's just a remarkable story and it helps younger people just that have a life mission that's unique and want to have a life mission that's unique. Your life mission is very unique. Um, and you're not inviting people to do it just the way you are doing it, yeah. but I think it helps our younger generation that wants to serve in unique ways and there's obviously ways to serve in our church but there's also part of our baptism covenants to serve in ways that aren't don't show up on lds tools mm -hmm. your refugee work if i went to your lds tools account if i were in your ward <laughs> none of that shows up nope <laughs> i'm and the primary chorister <laughs> that shows up there you go you haven't mentioned that yet <laughs> and so i just this is just, there's a layer there of just creating vision for younger people to do bear, mourn, and comfort the way that comes to them 
and 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 there you can do that in an LDS stools calling. Those callings kind of come your way. You can just proactively be called into spaces that other people haven't gone before, perhaps, or that people don't understand the need for, and just do that the way you feel impressed to do that. And I'm recognizing more Latter-day Saints wanting to do that, and I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And you're a trailblazer. You don't want to use me to use any of this language for you, but you're a trailblazer, and you create vision other people, and you can have conversations with people in our faith and outside of our faith, and working together with all of the human family to lift the burdens of others. Mm-hmm. Um, your story about Parker is so moving. We've done, I don't like the rank podcast, but I've learned so much from that story. And here are just some things I wrote down, listeners. You have not only a story, but a gift of language and a, a gift of writing, but you call it the land of grief. Um, you call you need Olympic strength. Um, you said death is the great educator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote down here some notes to myself. You know, I, I'm craving for like that checklist, those two checklists you went through, the good things and the not good things. Mm-hmm. There's a side of me that's craving for that conversation in LDS congregations. Yes. And so listeners, you may feel the same way. And our elders quorum, you know, rightly so, takes a conference talk and we can often have really good discussions. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but often it's sort of a, a, a report on what that is in the conference talk versus sort of going one step further and saying, what can we do now with this and pivot to talking about a group of people that needs the, the invitation in that conference talk to be blessed. So one way you might pivot is start with a conference talk, if that's what you're asked to do and release society, your elders quorum and a family night, and then read Melissa's list. You know, there's lots of lead-ins you can use. Um, <laughs> Or you can just start with Melissa's list and say, well, let's talk about part of our baptism covenants to bear mourning comfort. And let's all get more educated on how to help people dealing with grief. Yeah. And this is a, I wish I'd heard your list. I've, you know, 10, 20, 30, I realize you didn't write it that long ago, but I think a lot of people want to do the right thing. Absolutely. But they, they don't know what to do in these more complicated topics we talk about on this podcast. and. So that list you said was just terrific. And I hope all Latter-day Saints read something, read your list and discuss it. Mm. Um, you also said about, we bond on our broken edges. What F- a powerful F- visual imagery. Mm. Mm. And you were pretty brave to be so vulnerable with how this two before going through you, this mm. huge hole in you. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, I've mentioned this before, but I sometimes think, and you talked about Western culture does this, and I've wondered if church culture does this, as we sometimes celebrate somebody who didn't come home from their mission or kind of had a really hard death and then just kind of stiff upper lip, moved on, and we, we sort of idolize or celebrate those um, people, and then we pre-sort of role model how we should respond if that is our road. Melissa doesn't respond like that. She is really. <laughs> smart and really faithful and really understands her doctrine and is really honest about the grief. Mm. I can't tell you how many people have messaged me, especially in the early years, would message me, particularly mothers who lost children, and they didn't feel that they were permitted to be sad. 
and they said, I feel like I'm going to somehow, um, I'm going to tarnish someone else's grief or people are going to think, uh, tarnish someone else's faith. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to mess with their faith or they're going to think that I'm not faithful if I express like I'm angry with God right now. And yeah. I, all I do is I say, uh, go to Jeremiah, go to <laughs> Joseph Smith, go to Job. And all of them railed at one point or another. Um, I mean, Jacob wrestled with God, but think about wrestling. It's the only way you can get your arms around something. <laughs> That's how you get close to something is actually chest to chest confrontation. And Job rails for 42 chapters until the very end. He's face in the dust, bottom of the valley of death. His friends have been miserable comforters. His wife has gone off. He's lost everything down to the bone. And then God says, when you forgive your friends, I'll, I'll accept your sacrifice. So on top of it, Job has to forgive his miserable, comforting, comfortless friends. And then Job says something remarkable. This is so important to me. He says, by my ear, I had heard thee and of my mouth, I had spoken of thee, but now I see thee. And that's the point of mortality is to see God. And I'm convinced that we don't see God until we have cried enough tears to clean off that, you know, that glossy finish. And we're really face first in the dust. That is where we meet. God, if I force my friend to bungee jump over the valley of grief, or if I myself try to rush myself through grief because there's something faithless about it, I might miss the very opportunity to learn who God is in a new way. And for God to see me and for me to see myself in a new way. I think that's the, that's the blessing. That's the blessing of profound grief. I love, I think it's your Munich apartment where you just wrote your own story about how you're going to process this. There's probably a lot of people giving you advice about how to get through this. That's maybe language. It's not even helpful because you don't get through it. <laughs> um, but I love that you and um, your husband, Randall, just, you just, you went to the scriptures, you went to everything you learned, but you didn't need community at that point. You probably did, but you just said, yeah, you didn't ever say, I don't need community. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. You <laughs> love that sister that just asked you. Jenny. Yeah. Jenny, um, mm -hmm. tell me, just asked open-ended questions about Parker and about yep. what's going on. So, but I do love that you went to what you knew and you kind of wrote your own story and how to do that. Yeah. Because there probably were a lot of people giving you advice about, and you'd seem to just, you and your husband and your family just close ranks. I don't know if you wanted to close ranks mm. or that's just survival mode, but I like that. And that's probably, I think, you know, people need to read your book and then sort of write, do this your way. You even talked about some people do celebrate and some people. Oh yeah. And so I think. Mm -hmm there's a principle in there that you got to do this on your own terms and yeah. you can't hear somebody else's story. And you said that mm. and say, this is how it's going to work. I wanted to read one Amazon review. Oh. Um, I cannot, and this is just an invitation to listeners to please read Melissa's book. I cannot begin to say how much this book has touched my life. Interesting. I just became aware of and subscribed to Melissa Dalton Radford's blog, maybe weeks before we lost our oldest son, the timing 
couldn't have been more perfect for a book to come into my life as it did after my son died. This look, this book literally became my blankie, Mm. if you will. And I would curl up reading it off and on during those early days of grief. Mm. I would dive into it wherever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to feel okay with my grief. And this was such a new emotion for me. I had no idea to do with it. The pain that comes with the child loss is immense and overpowering. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you've heard these reviews, you've gotten these messages. And I love that you even said, there's another woman out there that has a son named Parker that died in a drowning accident. And our stories are different. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. You know, I'm not writing my blog anymore because I'm writing, I'm writing other things now and I need to, I needed to funnel my energy in that direction. But I, um, I actually didn't read, I didn't read reviews because I'm, I'm that's, a little spooked by reviews. That's so that's part of boundaries. Yeah, that's, I just I thought, ah, oh, the last thing I need is for someone to take my personal story that required blood, sweat, and tears and say, eh, didn't do very much for me. I didn't. I was a little afraid of that. But I will say that when you read that, I sense such gratitude to my heavenly Father, but also to my son. I feel so grateful to Parker. I mean, I I dedicated the book to him. I dedicated the book to him and to the family because it's been their it's been their story and um and their influence and their strength that has has been transformative for me and if if my small experience again one tiny little dust like experience among all of the experiences in humanity if it can be useful to another person tremendously gratifying for me um and um i just just this last was it a couple of weeks ago a couple of months ago mom that i was invited to speak at the first ever life after loss conference at byu so there's such a need for this for an entire i didn't know that existed so they reached out yeah it's going to go on so the first ever life after loss conference hosted by byu you can go on to inspired inspired.byu.edu it's inspire ed so inspire ed and you can see all of the talks there i mean wonderful wonderful speakers and and uh, keynote speakers but also classes that were taught and this gathering of almost 800 people they had to put a limit on it because there was just such a need and i think they would probably double the size of the conference going forward but just in this immediate vicinity, there were people who came in from other places in the U.S. and a couple who came from outside of the U.S., but they, that gathering of people who were all broken, many recently broken, some that are still grieving things that happened decades ago, you know, um, it, it, it was a time where we bonded on our, our broken edges, and that's available now for anyone if any of our listeners is themselves suddenly smashed with grief or they know someone else that is you can actually go onto this website and you can see these talks and then you can maybe sign up to attend next year there are resources out there and you're not alone you are not alone perhaps that's one of the things that i heard the most in the hallways between these classes at the conferences that people said i just felt so isolated I thought I was the only one. Um, I didn't know where to turn. And when you're then face to face with someone who has experienced something 
somewhat like yours, you can speak shorthand with each other. That's, yeah. you know what I mean? You can just, you connect, you can connect in, in immediate ways. And that was really beautiful to watch. One of the things that I, you, you know, we talked about this before we went live is I think you'd be this way anyway, but there's sort of sister deserts of difficult things that happen to parents that may not be the loss of a child, but just the, the woundedness of raising children, Hello. <laughs> the complexity with that. <laughs> yes. And mm-hmm. just you would, while you may not have a child walking all of those roads that people open to you up, I would think one of the things that you being open about your story and being vulnerable People know they can talk to Melissa Dalton Bradford about the realities of their life. I hope and even, so. And so that's just an invitation that vulnerability breeds an ability to be a safe person. Mm-hmm. And only then can people not feel alone and want someone to walk with you, even if they don't know, even if they haven't walked that desert. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just so when you talk about this conference with 800 people, mm-hmm. People need community to walk, have people help them walk their roads they're walking and not feel alone. And Christ modeled that yes. in his ministry. Yes. Um, I'm thinking of Joss Johnson, um, who died in a sudden car accident in our stake mm-hmm. um, a year or two ago. And I wrote your name down, Josh. You're gone. It's kind of similar to Parker's story. Just older, been back from his mission. Just, just a terrific, one of the finest young men I know. and. His mom and Dave, Kim and Dave, Kim and Dave Johnson, I think of you when we talk about Parker being gone and all the other people that have lost terrific kids. And mm. I've learned better how I could support you from Melissa's podcast and the things I think of our friend Maya. Uh, mm. Maya, if you're listening, um, Melissa told me the story of how you met your now husband. <laughs> um, and I'm looking forward, my wife, Sheila, and I are looking forward. We love you, Maya, and are looking forward to meeting you and your husband now that we know more of this story. Our dear, dear friends. Yes, some of our dearest friends. And um, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to someday meeting your husband, Randall, um, oh. and just more of your family. You just have a terrific family and and just love your family. And anything else you'd like to share in just closing? Yeah, sure. Well, the next thing that I'm doing is getting on an airplane. Yeah, I get on an airplane in a couple of hours to fly to be with my friend. So someone, in fact, I dedicate this podcast to to her. She's the one who lost her husband suddenly last week in Fiji. This is Fiji. Yeah. So Diane, just so the listeners hear how things can happen, how life sometimes is full of trap doors. So Diane, I've known since we were missionaries in Vienna together. And James, my husband, knew when they were missionaries in Munich together. And we all taught at the MTC together. And then we sort of trailed each other during those years that we lived in the U.S. And, um, and Diane has been a dear friend of mine throughout, throughout decades, just one of the softest souls and sent me an Instagram message last week and said, my James is gone. My James has died here in Fiji. They don't know what it is. He flatlined. Wow. And immediately I thought, what a blessing that I'm in the U.S. right now. And what a blessing that I told Richard, I'll stay until next week and we'll do that podcast next week because now I'm going to go to her. I'm going to go on an airplane just to spend time with my friend 
who has lost the love of her life and just to be there. Do I know what to expect? Nope. Do I know what I'm going to say? Nope. I don't know. I don't know what will happen, but it's important for me because this woman has always shown up for me that I'm also showing up for her. And so I dedicate this to Diane Schwartz and her family and to James, wonderful man who um, is now ahead of us all in the spirit world. So that's the next thing. That's what I'm doing today. Thank you. Um, we'll just sign off. Um, Donna, you're here. Um, thank you for coming. The mom, the grandma, the matriarch of this wonderful family. I've Several times I've turned to you and watched your facial expressions as your daughter is talking. And I've just felt your heart through your facial expressions, your love for your daughter, how proud you are, how much you miss Parker. You've lost a grandson. That's a whole nother loss. No one should have to lose a grandchild. Mm-hmm. You've walked that road. You've lost your husband, David, in the last six months, 65 years of together, I guess 63 years of marriage. Um, but Melissa Dalton Bradford, for your beautiful life mission in this world to bring hope and healing and peace. And thank you for being who you are mm-hmm. and using your gifts to build others. And listeners, act on your impressions on how best to um, use this podcast, either improve what we can do as individuals to help others or others can help you if you're walking this really brutal road of grief. and. Um, act on the impressions that you felt that have come into your mind and soul, but don't get overwhelmed with too many impressions. You've got to live your life and you've got to, can't solve every crisis in the world. Do what you can. Um, We'll sign off now from another episode. Thank you listeners. Thank you. Thank you.